Hi, welcome to Financial Planning Explained, and I'm your host, Mike Manager, Certified Financial Planner, owner and founder of Manager & Associates Financial Planning. I'm pleased to have uh, with me a couple of my junior advisors. To my immediate right, sitting in the center, is Ryan Keefe, and to his right, or your furthest left, is Kyle Ryan, also a Certified Financial Planner. Um, once again, we're delighted to uh, bring to you uh, some commonly asked questions that we were able to pull down combination off the internet and things that just commonly asked questions that we thought would serve as a great opportunity to have like call it a panel discussion um, you know this is all designed to provide an educational experience for our viewers which is what fundamentally our show is all about um, you know we like to touch upon the different areas of financial planning you know you get the six different areas you got cash management you got tax planning which is one of my favorite subjects you got risk management which is really insurance planning you got um, investment planning, uh, you got retirement planning, and you got estate planning. And they, while they do kind of follow a natural progression, they're all really integrated. And so, one of the better ways of delivering, and you know, we talked about this, we're actually talking about, you know, coming back and doing episodes on case studies. <clears throat> you know, obviously leaving out names and everything else, but you know, this is a way with which we can talk about real life practical experiences even if the question doesn't exactly uh, ask it it kind of gives us the opportunity to talk about it uh in a panel so uh you guys ready let's do it let's, all right, let's go after it all right what's our first question all right so when people reference the stock market what are they referring to i mean what's the what is the s p 500 the dow djia which is the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and the NASDAQ, which I just remember quotient. I don't remember what NASDAQ stands for. And you know what? <laughs> I don't care either. The NASDAQ. I don't know if everybody can do it, but who cares? You know, it's academic. Yeah. Um, so the whole idea is, you know, what are they? I mean, they're basically the three. I mean, there are a lot of indexes. Yes. A tremendous amount of indexes. Yes, but these are the ones you see reported more or less on a daily basis. Yes. Right. Yep. So... The Dow's the oldest, okay? Yep. And don't ask me how many years, but I know it goes back to the 1800s. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. I didn't yeah, know it that. does. I yeah, it does. Know that. Yeah. So uh, there's 30 stocks, and the purpose of the Dow, Dow Jones Industrial Average, the purpose of the Dow is that it kind of gives a broad brush of the economy. Yeah. Okay? Say. And, you know, oftentimes referred to as the blue chips, and blue chips are... You know, the big giant companies that, you know, your IBMs, the Johnson & Johnsons, the Bank of America, Apple now. You know, the big mm -hmm. companies that, you know, represent the large portion of our economy. Typically the leaders in their space as well. Right, right. exactly. And so what's different also about the Dow versus the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ is that, it actually is based on the price of the stock as opposed to the market weight, which yep. represents the price times the number of shares. Then you got the NAS NASDAQ, excuse me, got hiccups. Uh, you got the NASDAQ. Um, the NASDAQ is 100 stocks, which are very heavily weighted in the technology industry. Yep. 
And one of the things that we noted, because of the fact that um, it's heavy in the technology industry and it's market weighted, the big boys represent a large percentage of it. What is it? Um, the FANG stocks. You're the FANG. F-A, then there's a second A. N-G, and then I like to throw an M at the end, FANGUM. Okay, so what do you got? Facebook? Apple. Apple. Amazon. Amazon. Netflix. Netflix, which seems to be petering off a little bit. Google. Google, also known as Alphabet. Yep. Okay. And then Microsoft. Yep. Okay. Um, those six stocks represent like 47% of the NASDAQ. Yep. As, so in other words, so goes those, those the NASDAQ. <laughs> but the rest of the index is very heavily weighted. Yeah. towards technology stocks. Right? And that's just simply because of its market uh, capital nature. You know, they just take the biggest companies in the space, really, and that's kind of similar to the S&P 500. It's, it's, you know, it's much broader. You'd think the S&P 500 would be the most representative of the economy, but because it's market cap weighted, the biggest companies, similar to the NASDAQ, are the ones that have the highest percentage in those. So, you right. know, the S&P 500 has 500 companies. Uh, at one point, I'm not exactly sure where it is today, but I think 23% of it was made up of those 25%, 26 it's hovering out almost 25%. 500 companies. Right, they, six of them represent of, 25%. And, you know, you look at the couple trillion dollar companies we have out there, of course, it's the Apple, the Amazon, Microsoft's up there. So they're not as representative of the economy because they're so singularly focused on a couple right. stocks. So what we found in, in, in people wonder, well, why... Are, are these moving so much, but this one isn't? Well, because those six took the NASDAQ running with it because there was 47% of the NASDAQ were the FANG stocks, 25% of the S&P 500 were the FANG stocks, but only 7% in the Dow. Yeah. Right. So when those FANG stocks took off in 2019, even 2018, 2019, and even 2020, it made the NASDAQ run, but the Dow is just lagging behind. Mm -hmm. But if you really get down to it, the Dow is so much more representative yes. mm -hmm. of the economy. Right, yeah. And periodically, they re-review the Dow to say, hey, you know what? This particular company is not exactly representative of the economy anymore. And the big one that went away, which was a staple for decades, was GE. Mm -hmm. When GE left, whew, you know, GE was the big company of the 60s, 70s, and 80s into the 90s. In fact, it wasn't until 1994 that GE was overtaken by ExxonMobil. And lo and behold, guess what? It's not there either. It's not, not there, there anymore either. either. Yeah. So that's amazing. So it, it, it's interesting how the economy has changed over time Absolutely. and how technology has become such a large portion of our economy. Yep, All absolutely. right, so what was the question again? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That's, that's what they do. Well, that's okay, yeah. So those are the, those are the three. So um, you get other ones. I mean, there's the Russell 2000. Russell 2000. Small cap, very tiny companies. You know, there's, there's, there's a bunch of indexes for Yeah, you got the Russell 1000, the Russell 2000, and, and there's multiple. Yeah, the Wilshire 5000. Yeah. You know, but these are the most commonly, um, commonly referred to, and you hear it on the radio. Um, and, and, you know, the Dow's now good. Over 25,000, is it? 30. 30 35. 30. 30. <laughs> okay. Um, it wasn't that long ago that it broke 10,000. You know what, in the 90s, I believe it was? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, you know, people hear the, the numbers and, oh, my gosh, the, the Dow's up 100 points today. Well, 100 points today isn't, isn't anything like 100 points, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. But anyway, those are the indexes. And, 
And generally, they're in indicators of how the market did today and over time. Yep. In fact, there's never been a period where the stock market's been down for 10 years. And in fact, the closest it came was from 19, sorry, 2008, sorry, 1998 to 2008, yep. which, interestingly enough, the stock markets have fallen three times, 50%. It was the Depression, the recession of 2000, the dot-com bubble, they say, yep. and then the Great Recession. Yep. And the interesting part about it is that even though the market dropped twice, 50%, during that same 10-year period, it didn't go down. Right. Yep. Can't guarantee the future, but, but one thing's for certain. Take a beating that hard twice, it's amazing that it didn't go down during that period. And that's Absolutely. right. And, so. one, and one thing to keep in mind when you look at these indices, um, a lot of these indices are just, strictly speaking, um, U.S. companies. Yes. They're domestic. Uh, so when you, you have a well-diversified portfolio, you might have some international in there. You might have some fixed income in there. So when people look at their portfolio, and they're like, well, the stock market went up 13%. Why did I only go up 7 that's that's what we that's preach right. with diversification. That's right. Because when the stock market goes down 13% and your portfolio only went down 3 or 4%, that's when you're thanking those guys that didn't do so well. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's our next question? What's the difference? Oh, it's okay. pretty good. Yeah, it's like a good segue. What's yeah. the difference between an active and a passive investing? One of you guys want to take Just, that one? I'll start off with passive. Passive is... The index, basically, you know, <laughs> things that aren't changed are passively managed. They are sort of a set and forget, if you will. Um, you know, passive investing, you know, they set up, like you said, the Dow, they look at it once a year. You know, they make sure everything's okay. And unless there's any immediate changes, it's very passively <laughs> invested. Bless you. Um, as for active investing, you know, you have more active fund managers that can make changes due to varying circumstances. They might rebalance quarterly, monthly, whatever you please, but it's just as simply as. They are more actively managing the investments and can make tactical changes. Right. Now, to be clear, when we were talking about the Dow, the NASDAQ, and the S&P 500, you can't actually invest in an index. However, there are companies out there that have index funds. And some index funds will literally buy the 30 stocks in the Dow at the same ratio. Or the same stocks in the S&P 500. So what you do is going to mimic almost exactly how the S&P 500 or the Dow or the Nasdaq. But passive investment, as as you indicated, can be other types of indexes. Yes. Could be the Russell 2000, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Me personally, I'm not a huge fan of passive investing because I, I like to go back, and this is kind of before your time, but I think back to like 2001. In 2001. Uh, this was the start of a lot of changes. Enron, okay? So Enron was the number six size stock on the S&P 500. Enron went to zero like that, okay? At three months, six months, whatever the case may be. Well, fact of the matter is, is that if you own the S&P 500 index, your sixth largest holding just went to zero. Yep. Mm -hmm. Whereas active investing is if the particular portfolio manager felt as though Enron was nothing but a house of cards and 
they thought there was zero value in it anyway, they would have said, whoa, we don't want that. You know, on the flip side, they may have looked at Microsoft in the late 80s or 90s and said, wow, look at this company out of the garage. Let's buy a whole bunch of it. And then all of a sudden, that particular investment portfolio does well. Yep. And you'll see that a lot of times with you know, active investing. I am a fan of it to a great extent where active investing may be more appropriate. Yeah, I right. mean, if you have a finger on the market and you don't react emotionally, then yes, you know, you can absolutely do active investing. Passive investing, I would say, is good for someone who doesn't really understand the market. They have a long time horizon. Sure, you know, just if you put it into an index fund, historically, it has done well. You know? Right. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, even going back to a previous episode, we were talking about target date funds. I really enjoy those in 401ks. Those are actively managed funds to appropriate, you know, to change right. themselves. For diversifying and allocating. Exactly. The so reason yeah. why the index funds historically have done well is because they say no, no, very few active managers can consistently outperform the index. And then what also happens when you have an active portfolio management is there are additional expenses that is true. in the investment fund. So where a index fund has very, very low expenses, less than 0.1%, an actively managed portfolio may be 0.6 or 0.7%, right. which means if it's 0.6 versus 0.1, that particular manager has to outperform the index by a half a percent, which they're certainly capable of doing, but there's belief by many that they can't do it consistently. Right. So what's our next question? It is, what's the difference between growth and value stocks? Okay. Well, I'll, I'll tackle this one. Uh, the difference, main difference between growth and value stocks, um, value stocks are gonna be your, your big blue chip, your dividend payers. They're not gonna fluctuate much in price. Uh, you're going to buy in at what you think is a cheap price, and hopefully it, it appreciates a little bit. Um, but generally speaking, they're, they're not going to be your big growers. Um, whereas your growth stocks, your your high uh, your high price to earnings ratio stocks, they're going to be the guys that aren't going to be paying you uh, dividends. Generally they're speaking, they're going to reinvest right. into the fund and try to appreciate their price from whatever the current share price is to hopefully a much larger one down the down the road. Yep. Um, yeah, those are your high PE stocks, which typically are technology stocks. Okay, your technology stocks are that way. Meanwhile, the high dividend payers, as Ryan pointed out, they're generally a little more conservative. And in fact, if you look at the history of um, value stocks, is if you bought a value stock 60, 80, whatever years ago, and let's say you bought $10,000 worth of that stock and it's appreciated to a million dollars. 60% of that appreciation is associated with the dividends. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas today with a growth stock that doesn't distribute dividends, and there are plenty of them out there that don't distribute dividends, 100% um, of their appreciation has to be the appreciation of the stock itself. Now, I like to say, you know, like they say in boxing, the bigger you are, the harder you fall. Okay, the faster you grow, 
<laughs> the faster you fall. Yep. So, you know, one of the things that we've found is that over time, um, and it's demonstrated that you have growth does well for a while, while value underperforms. Then value performs well for a while, as opposed to growth. And I believe long term, value has actually outperformed growth. Not 100% sure of that, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, that's kind of the way, I mean, growth stocks really have become popular in the last, I would say, 20 years because of the technology era Absolutely. that we are in. You know, since the recession of 08, I mean, it's been uh, the growth story. Has Not been just there. the last 20, about the last three or four. Well, I mean, yeah, the last three yeah. or four years, I mean, we had a, a difference where I think during just pre-COVID and during early COVID, I think we had a 50% difference, I think. Uh, growth went up 45% and value was down 5%. Remember we were doing right. that, evaluating the indices? Yeah. That's remarkable. Um, maybe we pick up on the same question at the end of the break, but we're at a uh, break right now. So uh, please stay tuned and we will be back shortly after this message. Have you saved enough for retirement? Are you financially prepared for an emergency or unexpected event? Have you thought about your financial future? Hi, I'm Mike Manager, founder of Manager & Associates Financial Planning. For over 20 years, we have been answering our clients' questions just like these as we develop unique and comprehensive financial plans tailored to meet their needs. When addressing your financial plan, we incorporate your entire financial picture, including taxes, estate planning, as well as investment planning and retirement planning. So call us today for a complimentary, no-obligation consultation. A unique approach to financial planning. Welcome back to Financial Planning Explained. I'm your host, Mike Manager, Certified Financial Planner, and I'm here with a couple of my uh, staff, junior advisors, Kyle Ryan and Ryan Keefe. We're going to pick up where we left off on the growth and value while we were talking during the break. Uh, we kind of wanted to say a couple other things about it. Um, you know, where we were talking about is that, uh, you know, you have periods where growth outperforms value, you have periods where value outperforms growth. And, you know, it's kind of funny, nobody seems to have that crystal ball. This goes back to, you know, what we've always preached when it comes to investing, asset allocation, diversification. Uh, you know, we strongly encourage don't go all growth and don't go all value. And, you know, you have a certain percentage in each because inevitably, you don't know what's going to happen the next day. But if growth goes down, at least we're in value. And if growth goes up, at least we're in growth. And it's kind of simplistic from that perspective. And of course, you know, when you're hiring active portfolio managers, then what's happening is that they're identifying deep down if there is a particular company that they feel within their mutual fund that they're managing or their ETF or in their actively managed portfolio, if they feel that a particular stock is a good buy right now, well, then they're going to pour more money into it, and you're trusting that the portfolio manager knows more about the investing piece. Now, what we also pointing out during break. Yeah, I mean, how I look at it is as simple as company has profits at the end of the day, value 
companies typically will distribute profits in the form of dividends to their shareholders, whereas right. growth companies will typically take their profits and reinvest in themselves. And that's why we say technology companies typically typically are growth, healthcare companies typically are growth. Those that are looking for innovation typically are going to put that money into themselves, whether it's R&D right. or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Value companies, you know, they're just they're just giving back to shareholders because that's just how they are. Well, one of the things that um, if you really look at the intrinsic value of a stock by definition, okay, by definition, uh, the intrinsic, the, the actual book value of, uh, the value of a stock, shall I say, is based upon its earnings, its earnings growth, its dividend, and its dividend growth. And so with that, it creates a value. And if the value of a stock, hypothetically, according to that uh, formula, is $100 a share, it moves up and down based on people's perception of the stock. Hey, I think that stock is a really good company. I think the earnings are going to improve and their dividends going to improve. I want to buy it. And there you have the supply and demand shift. You have more people buying it, the value goes up. More people wanting to sell it, the value goes down. However, part of that calculation also takes a look at the future dividends and the dividend growth. And then it pulls it to bring it to today's value. In this example, I used $100 a share. Well, what's interesting is that now you're talking about the interest rate environment comes into play, which means that it's taking a look at the present value of the stock. So what happens is if you are in a rising interest rate environment, and we saw this in 2021, in a, and also in 2020 when interest rates were going down, yep. The lower dividend pay in stocks move more with interest rates than the ones that are spitting out dividends. And so we saw quick movements in the high PE stocks, which are the lower dividend paying, which are represented by the NASDAQ. We saw bigger moves with interest rates on those. Yep. So that's just another thing to throw in there as yep. it pertains to that. Anything else you wanted to add, growth versus value? Um, I, I guess one thing I'll just add to the, the value side is I, I see a lot of investors who, who put all of their emphasis on the dividend that a company sets right. out. And one thing I would just want to urge our viewers to you know, adhere to is you know, a company's dividend is not set in stone. A dividend could be cut, it could be raised, it, there's, they could not pay it one quarter. It, it's never a guarantee. So don't always put the value of a company just based on how much of a dividend you Right, and you know what? So uh, on that note, that's a very good point. Um, but companies have a history, uh, I'm not sure if I should use no. this particular no. company, <laughs> as you're going for now. but it is a particular, well-known, everybody knows a company, okay? And it has declared for 50 years every year it raises its dividend okay well suddenly this dividend is almost eight percent why because if its dividend last year was four percent basically it's how much your dividend is divided by your stock price if the stock price drops in half but the dividend remains the same then it went from four percent to eight percent because the company does not want to break its tradition of raising a dividend every year. So you're right. So what may happen is that you have a company that's spitting out a dividend, 
but the company itself is not healthy and the value of its stock is going down. So great point. Yep. Be cautious. Okay. If you're going to be doing investing, all we encourage you to do is to do adequate research before you spend your money. All right. Next. My work is offering me a raise that's going to push me into a... <laughs> So. Should I should I decline the raise? Hey, Ryan, it's going to push you into a higher tax bracket. I think you so, should decline it. So I actually had a buddy of mine ask me this, and I, I did the same thing. I kind of laughed. A lot of people, it's a misnomer out there that, oh, my God, I'm, I'm going to jump into the 22% tax bracket. I'm at the 12% right now. I, I don't want that. It's only that marginal amount that right. breaks into the next tax bracket that will be taxed at 22%. Um, I, I vividly, I mean, I remember having conversations about this and hearing them and um, thinking, you know, uh, say one of the spouses works at home, takes care of the kids. Well, I don't want you to go back to work because that would push us in a higher tax bracket. It's the same thing. You know, oh, I know. Isn't that amazing? And so, so it, you know, it, it, it's actually funny. What I would encourage you to do is we actually have a couple episodes on tax planning. In fact, what we do is we teach how the tax system works on the federal side. So we're running low on time. We can do one more question. Let's do it. Okay. What is it? What is an RMD and how does it work? And what were the recent changes to inherited IRAs? Well, for those of you who don't know what RMD is, it stands for required minimum distribution. A required minimum distribution is if you have an IRA and it's your own, then once you turn age 72, which, by the way, is a recent tax law change, it used to be age 70 and a half. And a half. Yeah, well, <laughs> why a half? They forgot to consult me. Like, confuse people. Why not 70? Okay, forgot. Anyway, anyway. So it's now 72. The year in which you turn 72, you're required to take a required minimum distribution for the rest of your life. And what it is, is it's a percentage of how much you actually have in your IRA the prior December 31st. And that percentage is really a function of your life expectancy. So as you get older, that percentage goes higher. Rule of thumb again is in your early 70s, it's roughly 4% of your IRAs, the aggregate of your IRAs. So if you have $100,000 in IRAs, 4% is $4,000. But the rules are different for inherited IRAs. Inherited IRAs, yes. That recently changed at the same time that the RMD age got pushed from 70 and a half to right. 72. Um, the SECURE Act. The SECURE Act, exactly. Um, you used to be able to, your beneficiaries, you know, say you pass away at the age of 70, your children are 40 or 50, they would be able to inherit that money and take RMDs based on their own life expectancy. Right, Which, and a 50 year old's life expectancy using the tables is going to be roughly 40 years, so which means it takes one fortieth out. Yes, very tiny percentage. It becomes manageable. Um, remember, this is taxable money at a time when, you know, if you're in your 40s or 50s, it could be your highest earning years. Right. Mm -hmm. could greatly impact you. Now, the rules have changed. Um, now you have to clear that inherited IRA out account out in 10 years. You don't get to stretch it over your own time horizon. Right. You have to do it in 10 years, which could be a squeeze, you know. Oh, Again, absolutely. What if you're absolutely. in your highest earning years and you get a, let's use a $500,000 IRA, you got to take 50 grand. E well, you don't have to. More than that. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, more than that if you were to take yeah, even amounts. Exactly. That's so, right. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how it works. You know, inherited IRAs now, 
inherited IRAs, inherited Roth IRAs, Correct. inherited accounts have to be cleared out in 10 years because what they were addressing simply was, you know, just the longevity. Well, of the government wants their money. They want yeah. their money. That's it. <laughs> Plain and simple. I should point out and clarify that inherited IRAs are for any non-spouse beneficiary. So if I die and leave the money to my wife, then she can uh, take it as her own and then it only be applied to RMDs if she's over 72. Yes. So Good point. to point out, and, and, and as we wrap up this episode, because of the SECURE Act changes, this has a tremendous impact on tax planning and estate planning. And particularly for people who may have accumulated large amounts in their IRAs, um, and especially if they have just one child, because if they leave their child a enormous IRA, then all of a sudden they're gonna find themselves, or the children are gonna find themselves in extraordinarily high income tax brackets because they have to take that money out within 10 years and it's all taxable income. And as you pointed out, you know, using the average life expectancy of somebody, their beneficiaries are gonna be in their highest earning years. So trust me, if you have a large enough IRA or retirement plan assets between you and your spouse, you really need to be thinking real hard as to some planning techniques from an estate planning slash tax planning uh, perspective. Guys, thanks for joining me on the show today again. I uh, appreciate it. I think this is hopefully a good learning experience for all of the viewers here. Um, keep the questions rolling in. Uh, we would encourage you, if you have any specific questions, uh, please feel free to give us a call in our office uh, or just go to our website. Uh, you know, we have a contact us. You could send a, a question that way. We'll be delighted to take that question and bring it on to our show. So until we see you the next time, we hope that you had a great uh, learning experience today and we look forward to seeing you for more episodes. Thank you for joining us today. You have a great day, a great week, and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much.